Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Brent Palm, and Brian DeRoy. We're going to delve into what's happening in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, an update on COVID-19, TV and movie productions in Minnesota, and a safety reminder from the DNR on ice conditions. But first... To the best of my judgment and ability. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. Thank you. Governor Tim Walz sworn in for his second term in office one day before the Minnesota legislature opened its 2023 session. Eminence Bill Werner recaps a whirlwind week. The era of gridlock in St. Paul is over. Pledged to the governor in his second inaugural address and no surprise and even bigger applause when he told the audience at St. Paul's Fitzgerald Theater. During this next coming legislative session, we will make the largest investment in public education in our state's history. We will, we will pass universal meals to ensure that every student is giving something to eat and no one carries a lunch ticket. We will fund special education to make sure when we say every child, we mean every child has the resources to succeed. And the next day, as the Minnesota House and Senate prepared to convene, the governor in the hall outside brought brownies to lawmakers, including House Transportation Committee Chair Frank Hornstein. Now let's, let's build some roads. We're going to do right. We're going to pass the best transportation bill ever. And in that same space, hundreds of anti-gun violence advocates. This uh, session's our session. Criminal background checks, extreme risk orders. We want funding for violence interruption programs. The hour of 12 o'clock having arrived, it becomes my duty as your Secretary of State to call the members of the Minnesota House of Representatives to order. Let's send a little money back in the form of a check to families so they can have a little spending money if we can. I'd like to try and do that. The governor said in his inaugural address the day before, legislative leaders were noncommittal about that, but they did promise a child care tax credit of $3,000 for each child age five or younger, up to $7,500 per family. House Majority Leader Jamie Long. I know as a parent of young kids, the same to put a kid into child care as it is to put a kid into the University of Minnesota for full-time tuition. But what about tax relief beyond a child? Child care tax credit. House Speaker Melissa Hortman said some Democrats and Republicans want to exempt Social Security benefits from state income tax. However, it's very expensive in the future. Uh, if we're going to do something like that, we need to know what happens in future years to our investments in things like public schools. Republican leaders of the Minnesota House and Senate say give Minnesota's massive $17.6 billion budget surplus back to the people. Democrats this week outlined their top priorities for the new session, saying early on paid family and medical leave. Everyone deserves the time to take off uh, when somebody is sick in their family or if they need the time to take care of themselves. That bill would establish a state-run program financed by premiums paid by employers similar to unemployment insurance. Employers could charge back their employees for up to half the cost. But business groups say many employers already provide leave to their employees, and a mandatory program would put further financial burden on businesses that are already struggling. And as the 2023 session began, it quickly became clear that first on Democrats' priority list is putting abortion rights into Minnesota law. The electorate sent a really strong message to their elected leaders in the state of Minnesota that they value their reproductive freedom and bodily autonomy. If you don't have bodily autonomy, you don't have anything. 
something else. A Minnesota Supreme Court ruling leaves abortion still legal in Minnesota, even though the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade. But pro-choice forces want extra insurance, and Governor Tim Walz supports that. These issues they care deeply about. It put an awful lot of young people, like my daughter, to the polls um, over the issue of... Uh, sovereignty over their own bodies. And so I think the sooner you pass those things, it sends a strong message. Republicans strongly oppose it. House Minority Leader Lisa Damoth from Cold Spring. I do know that Minnesotans are not extreme. Abortion should not be legal up till the moment of birth. Republicans do not have a majority in either chamber, but in the Minnesota Senate, Democrats hold control by only one vote. So if just one of their members breaks rank on the floor, their abortion rights push falters. The most extreme position on abortion probably in the world. This puts us in league with places like North Korea. Said North Branch Republican Ann New Brindley as the fast-tracked abortion rights bill cleared its first House committee in this first week of the 2023 session. Attorney and sexual assault survivor Samantha Alsadi from Egan told lawmakers if the Minnesota Supreme Court, for whatever reason, overturns Doe v. Gomez. Our children and teenagers who are victims of rape, just like I was 20 years ago, may be forced to carry a fetus from their rapist to term. But Tammy Berry from Ottertail County told legislators she's the grandmother of an aborted baby. The judge, through judicial bypass, told my child she was free to kill my grandchild without my permission or my knowledge. Republicans tried unsuccessfully to include a ban on third trimester abortions. Representative New Brindley saying babies can feel pain at that point. What it would be like to be dismembered, burned with chemicals to the point of death, or having a needle stuck through our chests, our torsos, into our hearts. Bill sponsor Democrat Carly Katiza-Watoon from Eden Prairie responded, third trimester abortions are exceedingly rare and... Some of the fetal diagnoses may cause a, a, a baby extreme pain after the moment of birth, should a parent choose not to go through an abortion. And this week, backers of legalizing recreational marijuana renewed their efforts at the Minnesota legislature with bills introduced in both chambers. Democrats, as we mentioned, have only a one-vote majority in the Minnesota Senate, and Burnsville Senator Lindsey Port says they hope support for that measure is bipartisan. We have left uh, one of the author spaces blank on this bill in hopes that one of the members of the Republican caucus will join us. But I will also say we will not wait. But unless every Senate Democrat is yet in a floor vote, they will not be able to pass that bill without Republicans' help. Margins are also tight in the House, where Speaker Melissa Hortman says... It is critically important uh, that Minnesota right some of the wrongs that have been inflicted on our population because of our prohibition policy. Which recreational cannabis backers say falls disproportionately on Minnesotans of color. Ryan Hamilton with the Minnesota Catholic Conference responds... If this is really about uh, racial justice, then the legislature should consider pivoting their focus to a decriminalization effort that is not contingent upon the full commercialization of THC. Governor Tim Walz wants a bill to sign legalizing recreational marijuana. Those who say you're promoting the use of this, nothing could be further from the truth. I want my children to be able to make good decisions, but once they reach an age where whether it's alcohol or uh, recreational cannabis, they make good, smart decisions, but they know what they're getting and where they're getting. These legislators care about the people of Minnesota. And I think when they look at it holistically, they're going to be able to take a deeper look than perhaps they've had in the past. And uh, I don't think this is on a fast train at all. Minnesota Trucking Association President John Hausladen. But recreational marijuana advocate Marcus Harkis says if Democrats want to retain their majority in the Minnesota legislature, quote, they're going to have to get this done. A lot of independent voters, including myself, supported, you know, the trifecta because we knew that only the Democrats have a majority control would get this done. And so here we go, Tasha.
Thanks, Bill. It will be another interesting legislative session. More Minnesota Matters right after this. It's Thursday night and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Start it off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody squeeze in. Say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings. And another. Can we get some extra ranch sauce? Then there's the ceremonial nightcap. So what are we doing this weekend? And lastly, it's back to the car, which, if you're buzzed... ...could be the most expensive night of your life. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. COVID-19 may not be getting the daily headlines like two years ago, but a Minnesota-based expert says the virus is still alive and well. Dr. Mike Osterholm, an infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota, says daily COVID deaths nationwide are still high, only second to lung cancer deaths. In a candid conversation with MNN's Brian DeRoy, Dr. Osterholm says ongoing confusion with masks is one of the public health's worst moments. Remember that in terms of using a mask, something to cover your face, it has two different functions that are critical. One is the fit. How well does it actually fit tight to your face? Because if you have leakage spaces, the virus will come right in and right out. Uh, do you have a beard? Beards, for example, will completely negate the seal. So for men with beards, uh, that right there says even an N95 is not going to work. Second of all is besides the fit, you have to have filtration. And the only thing that provides real filtration, meaning stopping the virus, like if we're going through some type of ventilation system where there was a filter that stopped it, it is, in fact, the N95 respirators. This material is made with an electrostatic charge in it so that it's opened up enough so you can breathe in and out relatively easily, but it traps the virus from coming across that bridge and into your lungs. Now, nothing else has that. Procedure masks don't. Ones that you see most people wearing where they have large gaps in the sides, where the material on the front is often airtight because, in fact, it's trying to keep you from getting spillage in, onto your face. And then on top of it, it's a matter of how you wear whatever you have, whether it's an N95 or any other kind of mask. Uh, if you wear it under your nose, it's like fixing three of the five screen doors in your submarine. It doesn't do you any good. And so when you add this up, I think that one of public health's worst moments in this entire pandemic, and unfortunately it continues, is the fact we have not clarified for the public what is necessary to actually have protection from a respiratory disease standpoint. And you must wear these N95s. I have to tell you, it's been very painful for me just to watch my own colleagues and how they've handled this. Just in the last couple of weeks, I've been in two different Minnesota hospitals where I walked in with my N95 respirator, met at the door and told I had to take it off and put on a procedure mask because that was their standard of practice. How little do they understand? So uh, I think this is an area that we have to do a much better job of, of helping educate people, particularly those who are at high risk for a serious disease, hospitalizations or deaths, as to how they can protect themselves if they do wear a tight-fitting N95 respirator. This is astounding what you just said. Uh, a gentleman like you, who, again, has studied this topic a very long time, were literally told at a healthcare place that you were wearing the wrong one? Well, they didn't understand what right or wrong was. They were told this is the standard of protection. 
And so you must do that. And I think that's the challenge is so few people really understand what respiratory protection is all about. You know, if I have a pair of swim goggles and I jump in a pool and they leak, it's pretty obvious right up front. They're leaking, okay? But if I have something on my face to prevent a very tiny microscopic virus from going into my lungs, I don't really understand what does that mean? You know, I got some in front of my face, but then I realize I'm breathing out of the side of the mask because it's an airtight material that's on the front of it. And therefore, there's no filtration at all that's occurring. People just don't understand that. And we in public health have done a horrible job educating the public about this. And in many cases, our own public health officials have been some of the biggest challenges in terms of understanding airborne transmission of the virus. So this is something that for this pandemic and any future one, we have to do a much better job at number one, understanding what it takes to prevent transmission of the virus using respiratory protection. And number two, what kind of tools do we have? What, what kind of respirators are, are the types of prevention methods we have to stop that virus from getting into our lungs? Great stuff. So I guess the, the easy summary is N95, wear it tight. Even though I'm a hockey fan, lose the playoff beard, and then you're going to be a lot better. Exactly. And again, I understand for many people who believe I'm not really a, a real risk of serious illness. I have to say, I know many, many people have been infected in the last uh, several weeks because this virus is rampant out there in many locations and they will have a flu-like illness. They may have a, you know, one where they're uh, out of action for a few days, but they're not seriously ill. And you know, I've said many, many times, I'd be willing to get COVID twice a year if it was nothing more than a cold and that's all we ever got. So then I wouldn't call that a problem. But when you're still talking about 460 people dying a day, when you're talking about 4,500 people in this country in an ICU bed right now, as we speak, because of COVID, when you realize that you may have 35 to 40,000 people hospitalized today in our hospitals around the country with COVID, it is not a benign disease for some. And that's what we've got to continue to emphasize. Dr. Osterholm says COVID deaths are overwhelmingly in the category of the elderly and those with underlying health conditions. He says the virus is ever-changing and likely isn't going anywhere anytime soon, despite vaccines which often negate the serious effects of COVID, but do not stop it. More Minnesota Matters after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. TV and movie productions increased in Minnesota after the 2021 legislature passed a new tax credit and officials are seeking additional help this session. Eminem's Brent Palm talks with the head of Minnesota Film and TV Board about their 2023 priorities. A new legislative session is underway at the Capitol and supporters of TV and movie productions in Minnesota are asking state lawmakers for more help this session. Joining us on this week's Minnesota Matters is Minnesota Film and TV Board Executive Director Melanie Bayhan. Melanie, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Brent. Happy to be here. For those who aren't familiar, give us just a brief description. What is the Minnesota Film and TV Board? Minnesota Film and TV is a 501c3 nonprofit uh, that serves as our state film commission. We are responsible for... Uh, attracting production uh, to the state for serving as a liaison, helping productions with locations and hiring crew and administering the incentive programs to filmmakers throughout the country. From what I understand, there are some sort of tax rebates, tax incentives, things that could help these folks want to pick Minnesota as a state to do the production, right? Exactly. There's incentives were first introduced in the late mid to late 90s by Canada, um, and 
what we saw in the U.S. was was production just hemorrhaging out of the country and going to Canada to take advantage of those incentives. So U.S. states, in response, created their own incentive programs. Minnesota created a rebate program, which has existed off and on since 97, but it was just not, uh, rebate programs are not as competitive as other programs. So we continue to have that program. It's funded at a very low level. But in 2021, we were able to pass a tax credit program, which is much more competitive with other states. It's also, I think, uh, more attractive to Minnesota and its taxpayers because it does not require a direct appropriation in the budget. So nothing when projects come and spend their money in the state it is not until after they have spent their you know five million ten million dollars in the state um, and had that all those expenses audited and verified they then get a tax credit certificate the state never writes a check you know it's money that would not otherwise have come to the state unless the tax credit existed so I just see the tax credit as a great program that I'm thrilled that we got passed in 21. But what we want to do now is make sure that that program is shored up and stable for the long term. Okay, so that's kind of up the alley of what you might ask state lawmakers for this session. Yes, we have we have um, plans for this legislative session. Um, the first thing, as I said, is that we want to shore up. Uh, the tax credit that they they passed in 21, we would like to expand the the cap on the credits. Um, it's currently only at five million, which makes it the smallest program in the country. We just want to bump that up um, so that we can attract larger budget projects that are going to pay better salaries. And then finally, and this is the big one, I think we would like. Minnesota to establish a state film commission within the Department of Economic Development. Minnesota is the only state that allows a 501c3 nonprofit to serve as its film commission. You know, it's just time for Minnesota to step up and, you know, be like the rest of the country. There are a lot of problems with having a nonprofit doing this kind of work that is realistically is a government function. It is economic development and jobs. And so it belongs within the state government. So that's what we'd like to do is, is get these programs and this responsibility out of the hands of the nonprofit and where it belongs within uh, the Department of Economic Development. Melody, this sure sounds like a bipartisan issue. Have you had any fe- have you had any feedback from lawmakers yet? Absolutely. Um, film and TV production and the programs that we run have always had bipartisan support. Really, fantastic. the legislators that we've spoken to about all of these issues are very supportive on both sides of the aisle. So I'm really optimistic. I mean. You know, nobody is against economic growth and jobs. So so that's what these programs bring. And, you know, we can see even with the very small programs that we currently have, 
the I wouldn't say explosion of production, but it's it's certainly been a blast of of production that we got in the last year because of the new tax credit program, and that's production that's happening all over the state. the The Northland has seen a lot of that production, which we've been thrilled about. There's been I don't know how many three, four, five feature films shot up in the Duluth and Iron Range area. We've had uh, television episodes. We've had some series down in the metro. It's just been uh, it's been a great year, and we just want to build on that success. Well, Minnesota Film and TV Board Executive Director Melody Bayhan, hey, thanks so much for joining us on Minnesota Matters today. Good luck at the legislature, and you know what? We'll check in with you again this spring to, to see how things are going. Please do. I hope I'll have good news. Thanks, Brent. Time for a quick break. More Minnesota Matters in 60 seconds. Considering an online pharmacy? Explore BeSafeRx to find useful information and resources to help you purchase medicines safely online. A safe online pharmacy requires a doctor's prescription, has an address in the United States, has a licensed pharmacist, and is licensed by a state pharmacy board. It's best to stay away from online pharmacies that don't meet these criteria. Discover more helpful tips and resources at BeSafeRx. Go to FDA.gov slash BeSafeRx. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, coworkers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. Throughout the state, Minnesota electric co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. Joining me today is Nicole Biagi, the Ice Safety Coordinator with the DNR. Nicole, thanks for joining us today on Minnesota Matters to talk about statewide ice safety. You know, I know it's really hard to, you know, there's so many rivers and lakes across Minnesota, but can you tell us about kind of the current ice conditions and what we typically see this time of year? Yeah, so this time of year, you know, getting into January, into February, people often think we're in the middle of winter and the ice might be kind of safe everywhere. But of course, the ice is never 100% safe. And even though we're now into January, that does not mean the ice is safe. We've seen a lot of warmer temperatures and really heavy snowfall this year, which have resulted in areas of open water around the state that might often be frozen at this time. And we've been seeing a lot of, um, like I said, above average snowfall. So the snow is the main concern right now that I would talk about. Um, It adds a lot of weight on top of the ice. And so if people are going out on a lake that's covered in snow, they need to remember that it's not going to support as much body weight, gear, or equipment. And also when they're measuring that ice, they wanna make sure that they're measuring just the good ice underneath the snow and not that that snow and slush that might even be refrozen on top. And then the snow can also cover up and hide hazards. So there's you know, maybe pressure ridges out on the lake this time of year. And if they're covered up with a heavy blanket of snow, it might be harder to see them. And sometimes people flag or mark holes out on the ice and those flags and orange cones might be covered up with snow right now too. So it's a good idea to always talk to local experts and learn about the unique hazards that might be out on a lake, especially if you're not familiar with it. And lastly, you know, I would say that throughout the year, people need to continue to be cautious about um, aerators, springs, river inlets, and currents, especially under bridges, which continue to be hazards throughout the year, causing thin ice and open water. 
And, you know, you mentioned earlier um, ice thickness, and you said, obviously, no ice is 100% safe. Does the DNR measure ice thickness, or is this up to the individual? So that's one of the most common questions that we get to our info center is, you know, how thick is the ice on this lake or that lake? And we don't measure ice thickness. Um, we can't measure ice thickness because it changes so quickly um, and it, it can be different across even just one lake. So the DNR does not measure ice thickness. Um, it's up to you to go out and measure the thickness. And that's what we recommend is that each individual measures ice thickness frequently across a body of water. Now, can you give our listeners an idea of, I guess, what some of the thickness guidelines are? Sure. So the most important thickness that we start out with is you shouldn't go out on the ice unless there's four inches of new clear ice. So four inches or more to go out on the ice on foot. If you want to take out a snowmobile or a small ATV, you need five to seven inches of ice. And if you want to take out a side-by-side ATV, which is larger, you should have seven to eight inches. Um, for cars and larger vehicles, you need at least nine inches. So um, if you want to take out a truck or a large wheelhouse shelter, it's really important that you know the weight of your own equipment. And if you go on our website, you can see uh, how much ice you need based on the weight of your equipment. So that's a good way to figure out exactly what you need. And this is kind of an odd question, but how does one measure the ice? Yeah, that's an important question. So um, you need to make a hole in the ice and then measure it with a tape measure to actually get a, a reading of inches and not just look at it and estimate. So you could use a chisel um, or an auger um, to make a hole in the ice. And then if you hook the tape measure under the bottom of the ice, you can read the measurement of the ice at the surface. And then, you know, with all the, the snow that we've had over the past couple of days, I'm assuming that there's going to be a lot of snow and slush. Is this included in that measurement? No, so you definitely want to clear the snow away from the hole that you're measuring so that you don't accidentally measure snow or slush in your measurement. And then you want to look at the ice to make sure to see what quality of ice it is. So you want to be measuring new clear ice, not white or um, foggy ice, because that ice is not going to be as strong as the clear ice. And let's turn to kind of safety before heading out. Um, are there any recommendations for people before actually stepping foot on the ice besides checking those ice measurements? Yeah, so it's a good idea to, you know, look at the weather and talk to locals to learn about hazards on the lake. And then I would say to never go out alone. So you want to find a buddy to go out with and come up with a plan. Let someone know where you're going and when you expect to return. Even if you go out with another person, it's good for another person on land to know where you're where you're going out in case you don't return on time. And let's say, um, you know, in the worst case scenario that you fall in, are there any good ways, I guess, to, to rescue yourself? Sure. So it's really important that you have the proper safety gear with you to get the best chance of rescuing yourself. Um, the number one, you know, cause the most common cause of death when people do fall through the ice is drowning, not hypothermia. So the number one piece of safety gear that I recommend is a life jacket or a float coat. And if you have that on, it'll give you the best chance of getting out of the water into safety. And then the second most important safety gear would be ice picks so that you can pull yourself out of the water. So if you do fall through, you want to return, turn back towards the area where you fell in. That's where the ice will be the strongest. And then get your arms flat on the ice and get your ice picks into the ice if you can. Start kicking really hard and pull yourself onto the ice. Don't stand up and roll away until you get to stronger ice where you might be able to stand up and walk away. 
Thanks again to my guest, Nicole Biaggi, Ice Safety Coordinator with the DNR. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Minnesota Matters. Be sure to join us again next week on this MNN affiliate station. Same time, same place. Have a great week.